0: I am yours. I am yours. I am yours. Send me, Lord. I am yours. I
1: Welcome am to the Gospel Centered Pro Life Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk with Jason Jimenez with Stand Strong Ministries about how to reach youth and even millennials with the pro life message. Stay tuned. Send me, send me, Lord.
0: I felt your passion touched your heart.
1: Well, welcome to the Gospel Center Pro-Life Podcast. We have with us today Jason Jimenez. Uh, Jason Jimenez is the president or mm-hmm. founder of Stand Strong Ministries. You can say both. Yeah, president and founder. All right. So, so Jason, just share real quick uh, what your role is, what you do in Stand Strong, and kind of what you guys' focus is.
2: Well, first, Dan, I appreciate having on the podcast and just the work that you guys are doing and the need for something like this, not just out there on the sidewalks, but also hitting people on the podcast world Yeah, uh, on the message of pro-life. But for me, is my background as a pastor, uh, God called me to the ministry when I was 18, and so fast forward all these years later, being 40 now— just loving people through God's word, spreading the gospel, doing that in written form, You're writing books and speaking in audiences from young people to older people to engaging the next generation of pastors and leaders around the country. So I've been blessed to be able to do that and also contributing in areas like this and doing a lot of interviews and trying to train up the Christian to stand strong in their faith according to first Corinthians sixteen, thirteen. Yeah. So as a pastor apologist, that's my call, is to help equip people with a biblical worldview.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so we're gonna talk about it. you know, I don't wanna limit it. I mentioned before we started the podcast, I wanted to talk about sort of the youth and how how to get youth to embrace a pro-life framework, really Mm -hmm. a biblical framework. But I don't want to limit it to that, so don't don't stay limited if it goes uh, far and above that. We certainly talk about that. But you're involved in some uh, conferences. You say you, you teach at Summit, mm-hmm. uh, some which is focuses on youth or people 25 and, and Yeah, younger, 16 and
2: to 25, what,
1: yeah. Yeah, and you're there and you're doing apologetics and, and you're talking about sort of arguments for the existence of God and that sort of thing. But also there's some, you know, necessarily some pro-life apologetics that come up in that particular scenario and other scenarios that you do. What, do, do you find that youth within the church are overwhelmingly pro-life? Or is it sort of a mixed bag? You know, would they say, when you ask them if they're pro-life, they might all say yes. But when you ask the deeper questions, you really got to read for the fact that they are actually
2: pro-life? Well, that's a good question. And you're right. I think it's one of those generational gaps, if you Mm -hmm. will, when it comes to an issue, particularly if you're an older person, you know, probably being somebody in their 40s up, and you're asking a younger person in the church world if they're pro-life, the older generation has a particular take on what it means to be pro life right. and the younger people have a particular take on what it means to be pro life and one of the things that we found even in we even church going young people you know we're talking millennials born after you know 1984 and then the gen z generation starting after you know 911 you know september 1 you ask them what it means to be pro-life and they'll have, in, in the scientific world today, they'll think, well, it depends on what you mean by life. At mm-hmm. what stage are you referring to? And so, of course, as a pro-lifer, we believe all life is precious because we're all made in the image of God according to Genesis 127 and other passages. So in one sense, when you do ask the question, we have to make sure that we clarify what we mean by being pro-life. So specifically saying, "What do you be- where do you stand when it comes to the, to the unborn or to the fetus, Right in the womb, yeah, and seeing what a lot of young people say now in the church world, predominantly yes, they will say, "I believe that the 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 unborn is human from the moment of conception." Yeah. Now, can they argue that scientifically and philosophically and biblically that is now another area that you enter into to to not only define those terms but also to defend what it means to be pro life? Yeah. So, so it's
1: almost like, with some of the, from what I gather and what I hear you saying, it's almost like they've sort of just by you know default embraced the mm-hmm. convictions of their parents or people that are older than them and haven't really really thought it through very much. Right. And so if they were to give an apologetic for why they believe that life begins at conception and unborn lives are precious and that sort of mm-hmm. thing, you're saying they would sort of miss the mark. They miss the
2: mark, and so the great thing is that like Summit Ministries. <clears throat> And people can go to summon.org to check out the ministry there. This has been going on since the 1960s. And it's a Christian organization where we train people from all over the country. Even people from all parts of the world come. Mm-hmm. And they come to one of our 12-day sessions. And in one of those sessions, they're going to get a full day on pro-life apologetics. Okay. And what we found, and this is, this is actually good data, Daniel, because you have different denominations, 16 to 25 year olds, right? So you got the college and the high schoolers coming together, yeah. predominantly from junior, you know, in high school to a senior in college. Some of them come, they've already graduated college. Uh, some of them go to summit, they come to learn from different instructors like myself so they can be better equipped to go wherever it is, and primarily in the university yeah. setting because they're getting the secularism, they're getting attacked by evolution kind of stuff. But what you find and why this is so good data is because a lot of them are churchgoers. They're representing different denominations, but they will tell you more often than not, yes, I came in being pro-life, but now I know why right, yeah. I'm pro-life scientifically, philosophically, biblically, theologically, and in the culture. And that's And that's what we love to do. And that's what is important here. So because what happens is if you say, well, yes, I'm pro-life, which many young people in the church world that are claimed to be Christian are... But then you have somebody like a friend says, well, why that? Why is that? Or they put up a scenario or they put a moral dilemma out there. Yeah. And you find that they crack. Yeah. And they'll give in because of the feelings. Well, you're right. I'm not a man. She's a woman, right? It's yeah. her body. It's not my body. Yeah, yeah. But I, I wouldn't personally do it. But if she does, it, I guess it's okay for her. And those kind of things. So we put them in those kind of situations. And we want to show them the ultimate standard is God. We look at that life that is precious and valuable because it has dignity, because they're made in the image of the Lord. And we know scientifically that life does begin at conception, that a zygote, which is a, a cell, they have all of the genetic composition right that is needed right at that moment. You were a zygote, I was a zygote, all of us, every human being was. And if that's the case, it has that intrinsic value that is attached to it, Therefore, at any given time, an abortion would be morally wrong because it's a human life that has value. And so when they when they start defending that and start understanding in a deeper way, and then you start teaching teaching them through Scripture where we see the significance of this, and then you apply it to the familial status between a man and a woman and what a family is and how husbands and wives and fathers and mothers are to provide care for these kids— It just now they have a more a greater appreciation, and then you put them in context of their family. Uh, You and I were talking earlier, and I think it's also important is is how do we not not just take them on a philosophical you know track or argument, but also now applying it experientially, personally, to say what would have happened if your mother and your father decided to abort you.
0: Yeah,
2: and you know, and and sort of making it personal, yeah, yeah. to personalize, and you and you see overwhelmingly. That what we're seeing among millennials and Gen Zs, even outside the church, is that they are crediting this growth of pro-lifers among the young generation to the science discoveries that we have, yeah, and the philosophical arguments. And I want to say one thing to your viewers and listeners: that we cannot underestimate the value of scientific arguments and rational philosophical arguments to this young generation. We think that they don't care; that they're just a bunch of gamers. They're lazy. That, you know, they're just subjective in their viewpoints. No, they want truth claims. Yeah, They want evidence. They want to have this type of discussion. That's why in the podcast world, the, the, the leading audience that downloads and listens and streams podcasts are millennials. Oh, yeah? They like this type of interaction. They like to hear arguments. They like to have debates. Um, now, I think some of them have to learn respectfully how to have, in through the art of persuasion, to have good dialogue. And how do you respectfully respond to someone who maybe opposes your position? Yeah. But needless to say, because, you know, <clears throat> we live in a, in a world of tolerance. But needless to say, a lot of them want to have a deeper conversation. So they may come off and say they're pro-choice. And then when you simply ask, well, what do you mean by pro-choice? Like, when do you think it's, it's right for a woman to have an abortion? Do you think in every case, in every circumstance... And just ask them questions. And when you find that people even outside the church and you're having these kind of conversations, we are, we are seeing a massive change of mind and heart that is looking at now the unborn as precious in the sight of God and saying, man, if that is truly a human being, which based on the science and these philosophical arguments and the rationale that comes with it, I need to be speaking up now for the voiceless.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they want that.
1: That's one of the things that, at least, you know, could be from my just limited experience, but it's one of the things that I hear from even Christian, you know, young people, Mm -hmm. you know, and thankfully, man, this is sort of a rabbit trail a little bit, but within Cities for Life, you know, we've got just an influx of young people that are standing on the sidewalks. I mean, before it was mostly like homeschool moms and retired folks, right. and we still have homeschool moms and retired folks, and we, we appreciate all the volunteers that we have. Right. We have a lot of younger people who are, who are involved. But when I talk about, you know, the value of unborn life, I talk to abortion-minded women or just people in general, um, one of the, the, the main, I guess, arguments or ways to kind of shield themselves from, from action is the kind of judgment thing. Like I, I don't want to be perceived as being judgmental. I don't want to be judgy. Yes, I believe that abortion is wrong, and this is for mostly Christian youth, you know, or Christian millennials or whatever. I believe abortion is wrong, but in my case, you know, I wouldn't have an abortion, but you know, I wouldn't want to judge someone else for having an abortion. So how do you how do you deal with that? Cuz it's 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 easy to take the bait on that, right? Yeah.
2: It is easy. And when it and then it depends on certain situations. I mean, first off, in that situation where we remind a lot of students is that truth is yes, subjective, but also it's objective. Subjective in the sense that, you know, I like coffee, you don't. Yeah. Okay, that the truth claim there is that I do like it. That's true, and you don't. And that's true. Now, it's subjective on how you view coffee and it's subjective how I view coffee. Just like ice cream, vanilla, chocolate. So we understand that truth is subjective to that degree, but it's not just solely subjective you know, in your interpretation of it. So people make assertive claims all the time. So when it comes to young people, you cannot say, well, I wouldn't do it because I think it's wrong, but it's okay for them to do it because it's their right to do it because they're their own person. So it's a personal preference to them. Now, when it deals with life issues here, that is no longer subjective. Yeah. Yeah. That is getting into the realm about of ice objectivity. Cream and, exactly, and <laughs> this is not personal preference, right? Because if I, because I mean, think about what you and I can do with that. Yeah. If that's the case, if truth in the end is subjective, and so morals and values are judgment calls by the person, right? I'm the arbiter of how I live my life by my own standards, right? And it's, so it's relative to me. So these relativistic norms in societal norms are going to be dictated by. Whoever has the most power, whoever is the most persuasive, or the most most charismatic, or who can persuade more people to do certain things, so murder and rape and human trafficking. If I believe that those are good things for us, right? That's our standard. Imagine the chaos that can result, you know, in in our society. So we know, as human beings who are morally free agents, to act upon good things or bad things. We know those things would be wrong. Yeah. So in the realm then for young people in these discussions, we're saying, okay, look, that's not just a personal preference. If in fact this is a human life and has value and dignity, it's not associated based on what we think because we don't judge personhood on certain properties that they either have or they lack. Meaning if there's certain properties they lack, that means they're less human. Or if there's certain properties they finally gain or are attributed to them, then they're then they're more of a human. Right. Like, those are not judgment calls that we make. So in that sense, when we lay out the claim that these things are now in the realms of, of, of objectivity, you can't just make assertive claims about it. These have to be now truth claims, meaning it's either morally permissible for a woman to have an abortion because it doesn't matter because it's not a human being, or she doesn't have you know, the moral permissibility to have an abortion because this human being has more value than the value of choice. Right. So as you start explaining these kind of things to a generation that has not had a lot of rhetoric, they've not been taught how logically and rationally to lay out an argument and to test and to evaluate it and to counter those type of arguments... Then yes, then they just make these assertive claims. So when now when you think, well, okay, it is a human life, well says, Well, now we're out of the realm of personal preference. We're now entering into objectivity to where there is a standard that transcends us. Yeah. And our responsibility then as human beings is to protect life. If someone's being abused that we see publicly or someone's in harm's way What is our intuitiveness? What is our reactionary response to these things is to help someone who is in need. We know that. That's a God-given ability that we have as, as, again, morally free agents to respond, to care, to protect, to provide. And so if this unborn is a human being then we are to respond to protect such a human being. Now, in the realm of people says, yeah, but I don't want to interfere with that kind of stuff because who am I to judge? Yeah. Well, John 7:24, Jesus says that we are to, to judge righteously, yeah. not hypocritically. So the, hypo, the the hypocrisy actually in all this is to know that it's a life and to know that that life has value and dignity that is that is attached to it because they're made in the image of God. And we know that scientifically and philosophically and morally speaking. So the hypocrisy there is to say that I love life, but I don't support uh, pro-lifers who are there to stand in the gap for those people who are choosing to have an abortion in that life. That's hypocrisy. So that is actually judging someone in an unjust fashion. Yeah. That's an injustice. Judging rightly and righteously is understanding that that value of that human life is greater than the value to have an abortion. Yeah. And so you're stepping in there now, and you're laying claim to these things, not because you're trying to interfere in someone's right to do something. You're intervening because that human right does not trump that human life. Yeah. And when you start putting sometimes these young people in these situations, they, these moral dilemmas that we oftentimes refer to, You start seeing the wheels turning where they're like, man, I never thought of it that way. Right, yeah. So we say, like, are you for or against slavery? What what does every young person, every human being in their right mind, obviously, will say is, of course, slavery is wrong. Yeah. Well, if you think slavery is wrong and you support the right of people like the abolitionists who stood against, and we think of one of the most famous, William Wilberforce. Mm -hmm who was a Christian, right, and a legislator in the parliament, if, if you stand for these type of of, of, of movements and the civil rights movements of people like Martin Luther King Jr., then why aren't you standing for the rights of the unborn if they're human just like any black, Hispanic, or Chinese person? Yeah. And when you start talking to them at this point, you start seeing that it's not a matter of, well, I don't have a right to judge them. We shouldn't judge them. We all got to be tolerant, just let them do the kind of thing. If we took that type of approach, Daniel to other aspects of our life. If you see someone's house being invaded in, someone's there robbing them, and say, well, it's not my house. It's not my property. I don't not want to intrude. Yeah. It's not my problem. You know, that person thinks what they're doing is right. Who am I to say that's wrong? Right. Of course it doesn't work that way. We don't believe in moral relativism. We believe in moral objectivity. And so when it comes to the life of the unborn, that is a moral objective claim that we are making. And we, ha- as humans, have... our have, are called by God to stand in the gap. And it's not a matter of tolerance. Matter of fact, it's a matter of love. Yeah. And true love lays down its life for others. Yeah. And that's what we're hoping that young, more young people are seeing. And, and actually, I'm seeing in the church world, we're seeing a huge shift as we're talking about all these kind of things in a way that they've never heard before. They overwhelmingly respond and say, You're right, it's no longer about tolerance, it's about truth and love.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I knew three kind of the, we talked earlier about sort of, you know, I don't know if we were talking about branding or like arguments and things that we use as ministries that are sort of our own sort of thing. And within the sidewalk counseling realm, we sort of have something like that that we use in our trainings. I'd share with you my my fail-proof pro-life argument, but that's not what this is. This is sort of our three points. Yeah. And we call this our three key points for sidewalk counseling. And we start with God. What does God say about this? Mm -hmm. So what does God say about abortion? This is how we train our sidewalk counselors. If you wanna know what to say, Say things within this framework, and you'll be just fine. We don't need to get into politics and all this Mm -hmm, other stuff. Stay mm -hmm, in this framework. mm -hmm. So it's what God says about this. So what God says about abortion, what God says about the mother, he loves her, he has plans for her. What God says about the baby, he loves that baby and has plans for it. So what God says about it. So we start with the premise that there's a God. Um, The humanity of the baby is our second point. So we might say, Mama, God loves you and loves your baby. Your baby's heart is already beating. And there we're talking about the humanity Mm -hmm. of the baby. And then the third point that we hit on as resources that are available to her. Mm-hmm. So, Mama, God loves you and loves your baby. Your baby's heart is already beating. We have help available. We have a doctor that would see you free of charge. That's sort of what we would say, and that fits within that So, mm-hmm. sort of three points. Mm-hmm. Do you find that, that those three points, uh, we call it our three talking points, um, help out or at least are, are what's involved in these conversations when you're talking to young people or talking to anybody uh, about uh, the issue of abortion? Absolutely, yeah,
2: because, again, going back to the whole thing is— If they're self-imposing their views or their opinions and not looking to God, well, that's a train wreck waiting to happen. So it's not a matter of how I interpret or what my personal preference is. It's what, again, the ultimate standard, i.e., God is. Yeah. If this is what God says that we're made in His image, male and female, He made them, that's either true or that's false. Yeah. Now, most people, you, you and I know, speaking in terms in America, yeah. they will, will not argue necessarily against there being a God. Now, obviously, I have a lot of atheist friends, and as an apologist, I spend a lot of time dealing with secularists and agnostics and atheists you know, and skeptics, and I love them dearly. And a matter of fact, a lot of them are very respectful and very cordial, and we're seeing a whole new generation of young atheist people who are throwing out questions, and, and they're intrigued and inquiring and, and upon this and, and looking at that. And so there's a, there's a great housing of debate that is taking place there, but <clears throat> bringing the issue of God, like I've talked to a lot of atheists who, again, they don't have an ultimate standard. They're the arbiter, right? You yeah. Know, you know, or society. In, yeah, they're is self-imposing. Or yeah. yeah, so they're societal norms where it's the culture that determines, and so they'll make the claims, and so they're still trying to hold you know, to an objective truth, obviously, like guys like Sam Harris, the the, you know, the, the the well-known famed atheist, he believes that there's, you know, objective truth that exists, but it's not because there's a God that exists. Yeah. But for the most part, most people who believe that there's a God, now, what kind of God that is, that that's a, for a later discussion, but believe there's something that transcends us. That's yeah. a very effective thing. And yes, to your second point, when you're dealing with the humanity of that unborn child in the mother's womb, you're looking at an individual with its own unique composition, its own DNA, its unique fingerprints, right? And the uniqueness of each person really brings the argument from a philosophical one that oftentimes could be out there in, in the realm of, of distance to now personalizing someone that you and I once were in our mother's womb. Yeah. So, and then, yes, three, the resources is effective because, <clears throat> as you know, Daniel, a lot of people are there because they believe that's the only result or resort to abortion because they're, they don't have the money or they're in a bad situation. So it could be for social reasons. It could be for economical reasons. It could be for relational reasons. Uh, it could be for spiritual reasons, and they find themselves at an abortion clinic. And if we share with them that there are there are resources, maybe that they haven't considered, yeah. or they've been doubting in their mind, or out of fear, they resort to 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 go to an abortion clinic. Maybe not to have the abortion, but to maybe figure out, okay, is this the next steps? But yeah. When you provide them, saying, no, there are resources. There are things that we can do through Cities for Life and through other agencies. It does help because yeah. you and I both have seen it. You know, our wives have seen that, and that yeah. could be very effective. So, yeah, that's those three talking points are very effective, especially when you're in the thick of it.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, do you think, though, those three talking points sort of fit into a, a framework when you're talking with someone, you know, away from the, you know, the battle zone, so to speak, away from the abortion clinic, but even like in a, in a university scenario? Do you find even bringing because uh, I know there's some arguments out there that you know we shouldn't even bring God into the conversation. Um, and of course we're leading with with God, right That's in those three points. Do you find that those three points would be good in that scenario in the university scenario when you're talking to you know college students and they're being brainwashed by their by their professors and and that kind of thing?
2: Well yeah, so, so again like like anything, it's the setting right. So like sure. you were saying if, if you know we're training, people who want to be on the sidewalk, you know, and it's a ministry saying, this is our approach. And a lot of people that are pulling in, especially at that time going into an abortion clinic, it's emotional. Yeah. We don't know their background, but we know anybody who resorts to going to an abortion clinic, we know there's a lot of emotional trauma there. There's a lot, in some cases, a lot of depression going on there. And so you want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so immediately recognizing God in this situation is always important. Now when you take it to an academic setting when people are out and about going to different classrooms right and we know predominantly the view on our uh, on the uh, university campus is a godless one yeah. the naturalism is the philosophical assumption here that bleeds in every subject matter so that's going to be a little bit different so my take oftentimes my approach especially in and having been on the university campus many times dealing with people who are secularists who do not believe that there's a god now, obviously, if they do, then the, the, the argument will still be the same. Sure. But what we want to do is we want to approach them, first and foremost, on a philosophical one, which just will lead me to the realms of ethical issues and moral issues down the road as I have this discussion. But first and foremost, I apply the claim to them, say, humans have value simply because they're human. Now, I want to know whether or not they agree with it or not. So, yes, I'm not starting with a deity first. We're dealing with the humanity issue. Okay. And we're dealing with value, the value of something. And I want to understand where they stand with that. And the other thing, too, as I'm asking the question, is is whether or not they believe truth is relative or it's absolute. If there's a standard. Now, I know, of course, there's a standard because the moment in which they're talking, they believe that there's a standard of truth because they're making truth claims or assertive claims. Yeah. It's either right or it's either wrong. It's either true or it's either false. So I want to establish some common ground with them in the academic world. Yeah. And if I have, let's say, less than five minutes with them, say, hey, do you believe that humans have value simply because they're human? Meaning are humans are a unique creation other than anything else? Now, if someone says humans have no greater value than animals, well, then I have to take a different approach with them to understand yeah. what, and unpack that for me and see what they mean by that. Second now is a scientific one. And of course, we live in the, the scientific inquiry that of, of our society in the 21st century. And that is science proves, based on the, the, the science of embryology, that, that life begins at the moment of conception. And when you have again that fertilized ovum, that zygote, that you when it's infused with 23 chromosomes from a female uh, ovum and 23 uh, uh, chromosomes from the the male sperm, and they unite together, you have a 46 chromosome human life. Yeah. That is a scientific fact. That is not Jason's opinion or Daniel's opinion or anyone's uh, opinion based on the pro-life perspective. We're not dealing with politics that I'm a libertarian, a conservative, republican, or whatever, or a democrat, I'm making a scientific claim. And in the scientific world, especially in a realm of academia, right, where most of them predominantly believe that evolution is a scientific fact, I'm using that as an argument to see where they stand with that. Because yeah. remember, if they don't believe there's a god, therefore they don't believe there's a being that has exhaustive knowledge, therefore we're only limited in our space and time in this continuum, meaning we're a closed, isolated system, we're just gaining ground as science proves other things, and so based on the scientific method, our sensory experiences is what we do, how we determine what is true and what is false. I'm using that to my advantage, because yes, I do believe, as even my atheist friends believe, that we're rational human beings. Yeah. Now why do we attain rationality? That's your approach if you're an atheist is gonna be different than mine as a theist, but the point is, is that we're finding common ground on philosophical value and dignity, and also the scientific evidence that we now have overwhelming based on the science of embryology that the unborn is indeed a human life. Now I want to throw that out there with at the to the university student to see how they respond. Because ultimately my conclusion is if 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 we all know that that we are more valuable than any other created being like animal in the animal kingdom, as human beings we have dignity, dignity and worth, that we are a We're genetically composed human beings with a body, soul, okay? And science proves that even from the moment of conception that we are a whole human being developing in the womb, obviously not developing into a person. We're not a potential human, but we're a human with great potential made in the image of God. Therefore, my conclusion would be to them, if that's the case, if humans have value because we're human beings and science proves at the moment of conception that you're a human, you're a whole human being, Right? You're a distinct whole human being. All the genetic genetic composition is right there from the start, right? That means abortion is morally wrong then. Yeah. And if if something if there are moral goods and moral evils, and someone at the time is saying that abortion is a moral good, they have to defend that argument. And based on what I just shared with you, Daniel, it's a very effective one. We found common ground that that value is with among humans greater than any other created uh, source yeah. right or species. And science, again, they believe in science. we believe in science that could be proven, right Because we believe there's self-evident truths. That's a strong argument outside what you believe personally. Yeah. right Well, okay, I guess that <laughs> I concede that point, but then now you have to wrestle with the conclusion then then you're okay. If it's morally wrong, to take an innocent life, you're okay with that? Well, of course not. Oh, I wouldn't do that, but who am I to say they can't do that? Well, no, see, now you're you're in a trap because just like we were saying earlier, if you put anybody in that situation when you see somebody being harmed or being violated, we have an obligation as good citizens, as yeah. morally free agents to protect people, especially people who can't protect themselves. Yeah. That's why we believe in military. We believe in law enforcement that doesn't force people to be good, but protect the good people from violent people. And that's exactly what we're setting the course on campus in this pro-life discussion to have so people can see, not an alternative, but what is really true. And that is the unborn human. We make those claims philosophically and scientifically. So that is a compelling argument based on making the case or laying out the case for life on the university campus.
1: Yeah. I know I find, you know, I have (laughs) the wonderful opportunity to talk to um, pro-choice atheists on a regular basis, the the folks who in front of the abortion clinic are out there to oppose our efforts. Yeah. And a lot of these these folks are in the universities or just graduated from the university or whatever. And one of the things that I find is they don't really uh, make the argument that it's not a life. Some do. Some will say it's not a life. And you have to define, well, define life for me because a sperm, which is life, and an egg, which is life, don't come together and to make non-life. And so that's immediate. But what they really mean, and I think really what pro-lifers mean, when we say life begins at conception, we could actually say life is there before conception. And reality is what we're saying is a unique life is formed at conception. But what I hear from a lot of pro-choice and a lot of atheist people is, yes, it's life but it's not a person. And so they're arguing sort of against personhood. And of course, the logical question, the logical question with that is, okay, well, when does it become a person? And I've even had some say, you know, science um, science says that it's not a person. It's like, well, science can't really in personhood to anyone. Like mm-hmm. science, that's mm-hmm. sort of a philosophical thing. You yeah. agree with that? It's a, yeah, it's, a med- it's, a a, yeah it's,
2: it's not only that, but it's a metaphysical. And that's the problem is what happens oftentimes, is a good point, Daniel, is they have a bad philosophy that is induced into science, which makes now bad science. Yeah. And so f- those are philosophical claims that science in and of itself cannot test. Okay, for example, you can't test what actually is aesthetic yeah. or value or the moral duty that we have. You can't test that in a tube scientifically based, I was saying earlier, based on the scientific method. So when they're laying claim to that, they're trying to make a scientific argument but what they're doing is they're inserting a metaphysical claim in that about person and personhood. Yeah. That's not a scientific argument. And and so now what actually is they're, they're digging themselves deeper because they're trying to be very explicit in what they mean to defend why they are for abortion. Yeah. Because they do identify, like you said, based on science, the moment of conception, you have all the genetic composition that is needed for that human being to be, you know, in nine months— You know, whatever it takes, you know, some, we know, premature labors um, that are now in this world outside of the womb. And so what I oftentimes do in these situations to help uh, the person who's trapped in this kind of thing saying, well, okay, it is, it is a life, but as it's developing certain abilities and properties, it's becoming more of a person. Well, now they have to define what you mean by a person in life. Are those two separate things? You can have a, you can can you have life without being a person? And can you be a person without what type of life? Right, so now yeah. you have to define both now. It's not just that, what do you mean by person? It's like, okay, what is your definition of life then? And what is your definition of personhood? The thing scientifically we can tell is again, as we just mentioned, the 23 uh, you know, cells from the ovum, from the female ovum and 23 from the sperm of a male, they, those ignited together. It literally is like a bang, Yeah. okay, in the womb that is creating life now we as christians now believe that the composites of a human being are body soul so to have life there's a soul yeah you can't have one without the other sure so connected within the body soul is a human being who is a person yeah okay now a lot of people try to lay claim now psychologically or brain activity. Yeah, that's to connect one of the things of the, the, yeah, the to to, to,
0: to sentient. It doesn't the, have yeah, sentience. The sentience.
2: Yeah. The senti- and that's an argument they try to make now. See, now what they're doing is they're, they're dumping the scientific evidence and they're trying to get into the realm of the philosophical. Yeah. And so they have to, again, stay consistent with life and personhood. So what I oftentimes like to do is say, let's pause for a moment and let's introduce a baby in this situation. At what point would you say abortion is a viable option even after birth? Because we even have a newborn to even a toddler who's not able to walk yet, right? Is limited in their functionality. So the size, so I use shape as a way to walk them through this. And they don't know this. I'm just having this kind of conversation, trying to stay, helping them, if you will, be consistent with life and personhood. The size, does the size of the baby? Determine if it's more valuable than the size of the unborn baby in the womb, right? When you look at the habitation, does the birth canal now determine what becomes more of a personhood or less of a personhood, you know, that's still in the womb or outside of the womb? When you look at abilities and properties, as we were talking earlier, them developing certain uh, abilities and capacity to move their hands or more brain activity or or, or the heartbeat, you know, we see a lot of legislators are, you know, trying to banning abortion after there has there is brain activity or there is a heartbeat kind of a thing after 14 weeks or whatever eight weeks, 14 weeks depends on what state you're in, but but just because they have they lack certain abilities and properties, remember the genetic composition is there, the code is there that's developing these type of abilities and properties, but that does not mean because they're limited in their abilities and properties that they're less human. Yeah. Because the value has been there from the moment of conception, as you and I have been arguing as a pro lifer. We happen to be Christian, right? But we can we can defend life, right, outside of Scripture because it points back to the truth of what Scripture is. And then the final thing is, in all these things, we look at the essentials. And then just because a baby is, is at the time dependent on the mother for nutrients, oxygen, and different things that are being supplied— does not mean it's less of a human because it's dependent on the mother to live. Yeah. Even outside of the womb, you and I are limited in what we can and cannot do. There are times where if you get injured and you can't walk and your your wife and kids have to support you and get you to the car and outside the car, does not mean that at that current state that you're not able to walk, you're less of a human being. Right. We are dependent <clears throat> on certain essentials even as we live. Food, still, water, yeah. and nutrients, and oxygen. Just like that that fetus, that unborn baby in the in, in his or her mother's womb. So when you walk through the course of shape to look at the difference between an unborn baby and, and, in this case, a newborn baby or a toddler, you see that there is no difference between either one of them that says that one is a human and one is not a human. They're right. both human. One is just developing. Remember, I told you it's not a potential human. It's a human with great potential. Right. And so now you're saying is you're now trying to have the personhood have more of these properties and these abilities to now make it a official human being. Right. Here's a problem. They're making the case that they made in 1857 with Scott versus Sanford when our own Supreme Court. Remember, this is from the Declaration of Independence, Yeah, that there is a God, that there are self-evident truths, these unalienable rights, that the king or anyone does not have a right to usurp or infringe upon because they're God-given. Yeah. This is the same country with the Constitution that has lasted longer than any other Constitution in the history of the world. The average is 17 years. We're going on almost 250 years with our Constitution that says that we have these Bill of Rights, we have these God-given rights that reflect in the Declaration of Independence and ex- explained and expounded upon as, as self-governance yeah. under the guise of, of federalism. And and yet, in 1857, when we believe that all men are created equal, every human being, and yet the Supreme Court says black people are less human than white people. Yeah. And they passed legislation to continue to allow slavery to be legalized in our nation. That is That was morally wrong. Yeah. Right? So they're making the claim of making this distinction. And the same thing happened, as you and I know, in 1973 when it came to Roe v. Wade. Yeah. And the thing that we have to understand that most people don't understand, the backdrop behind prior to 1973— is and using this Dr. Haeckel, who came and, and he was doing uh, Antogony, recapitulates phylogeny, is he was saying that when you look at the and this is where the trimester started to come out to try to specify when in fact that fetus becomes a human being. Yeah. To allow because it was about abortion on demand, the rights of women based on the Fourteenth Amendment. That's what they wanted to get passed. So when you look back in in 1857 and you look in 1973 and you had a Dr. Haeckel who actually forged what he was telling our own Supreme Court, what it actually is that you're aborting, more or less as an animal of some sort that's evolving in the womb. It's (laughs) a form of evolution that's taking place in the womb. You're saying, do you really want to go and and, and make those same kind of similar arguments that they made in 1857 that said that blacks were less human than whites and then, and and forging this documentation of saying what and actually is in the womb, because that's exactly what they're saying: is saying you're looking at the mother's womb, you're looking at this life in the womb, and you're saying no, it's less of a human, therefore has a right to abort it because it's not what you think it is when you say it's a human life. Right. You're making those arguments that they made since then, and I don't think a lot of people, when they really understand what they're arguing, <laughs> they want to go down. that road. They want to
1: get on that trail. Yeah, it's good to, to pin folks down. Uh, and saying, hey, you're making the same arguments that, that Nazis made. Mm-hmm. Actually, you're making the same arguments that racists made yeah. uh, back in the 1850s.
2: Not to say we we're saying they're racist or sure, but, it but says, it's just like sure? to do bring it to the mind. Yeah, and that's what I think, it, Dan, is very important. I know, and I love how you do this too, is we're not looking to prove people wrong. Okay, yeah. We want them to say, well, let, let, me, let me get this clear. And that's always a great way of, I always tell people there's two ways, especially in the abortion realm, clarity and charity. Be clear in what you're saying and make sure you're being charitable in saying it. Like Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. Yeah, We can't do one without the other. So I, I'm not, you know, we don't jump to conclusions for them and say, let me just be clear or let me get this straight. What you're saying is, and repeat it back to them. Yeah, and You, say, you know, what's interesting. If you're making this claim where you're making the distinction between life and personhood, did you, you realize that they did that in 1857 when they are still legalizing slavery or why they're defending their rights? To have slaves, and then when the woman had a right, abortion on demand to abort their baby at any stage in the trimesters, and yet that we now know that that was not scientifically grounded on facts. Yeah, nor was it in 1857. You wouldn't support that, and if you know the evidence that we have now scientifically and how things were doctored, and Haeckel was not being—he was not a legitimized doctor, but yeah, it was these 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 things were presented falsely. What happens in any case? If, if evidence was presented falsely or been tampered with. We throw it out. Yeah. So why would you then be taking those same type of approaches into this argument, claiming what you're saying is right? So those are as helpful ways to clarify the mess sometimes, because we know it's charged up.
1: Yeah, sure. People are defensive. Well, I mean, one of the things I think to me, one of the barriers is, and I think the barrier with, with young people, with millennials, is in uh, church folks too, you know is this politicized nature of the issue of abortion, mm-hmm. right? I believe the enemy has successfully politicized an issue that's—it's it's a life and death. It's a human being made in the image of God issue. It's not a Republican-Democrat issue. And yet people want to stay away from it because they they don't want to be perceived as, you know, a, a Republican or a conservative or, or you know, a, a Donald Trump supporter or whatever. Yeah. So they, they just don't mess with the issue of abortion. And— uh, I think when we yield that ground, we yield ground that we ought not, right? This is We have this conviction not based on our political persuasion. I don't have any any illusion that the Republican Party is going to end abortion in our nation. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think there's a lot of pro, pro-choice pro Republicans if you really ask mm-hmm. them the questions. Um, but what do you—I mean, you find that there's a lot of political, like, hands-off, don't want to touch that issue. We, we need to move on to more— like you know, feeding the hungry and, and that sort of stuff. I don't want to touch this abortion issue because it's politicized. you find that? Well, yeah, and it, I
2: think it's a good distinction too, and I have a lot of conversations with a lot of pastors around the country on this very topic, Daniel, and the thing is, is you have to distinguish between legal and moral. Yeah. So, for example, first and foremost, this is about legislating morality. That's what politics at the heart of it yeah. is all about. Sure. That's a good thing. So if you care about your taxes, <clears throat> if you care about the school system that your kids are in, if you care about having elected officials who are acting in accordance uh, to laws uh, above them, not that they're lawmakers, therefore they're like gods in, in and of themselves, right? They can rule and reign, and that's, that's elitism, that's dictatorship. If you care about what gambling does in our lives, if you care about cleaning up our streets, if you care about poverty, now, the government's sole job is not to be um, the method in which we solve all of our problems. But if you care about education, if you care about taxes, if you care about business, if you care about economy, if you care about, you know, lighting up our streets and the roadsides that we have both on a state and federal level, then you do care about politics, yeah. not politicizing <clears throat> a certain ideology, but you care about legislating what type of morality that we know is good and, the, and, 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 distinguishing that which is evil then it does matter. Yeah. But first and foremost, I'm not pro-life because I happen to vote Republican or or whatever the case may be. There's a lot of my friends who are Democrat uh, who are pro-life. So yes, it's not a blue or red issue. It's a moral issue. Yeah. And as a result of that, morally speaking, that is above any party line, we're not politicizing the baby, the unborn baby, in any which way. Uh, just like we don't want to be politicizing human trafficking, yeah. or we don't want to be politicizing poverty, uh, we believe that as we keep saying over and over, and why? Because we're made in the image of God. Yeah. Humans have value simply because they're human. They're made in the image of God, and it starts in the womb. It's yeah. supposed to be the safest place.
1: I'll, I want you to. Cause we'll wrap up here in just a second. Uh, this will sort of be maybe the last, the the last point that we touch on because you brought it up, and I wanted to bring it up. Is this this idea? Um, that we are made in the image of God. To me, that's like, biblically, that's the most important point when we're dealing with pro-life, We're dealing with when we're dealing with the value of unborn life. What does it mean on an apologetics level? Somebody, a young person was to come to you and say, you know, I believe that abortion is wrong because we're made in the image of God, but I don't know how to define. One of my friends at high school was asking me, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What do you mean by that? I really can't define it. How would you help that young person to define what it what it means to be made in the image of God? I know that can be a, a sort of a big a big subject, but just in a few minutes.
2: Well, first I want to just put a little cheap plug though, but the Benhams and I, we did a 30 day devotion on you version. Okay. It's an I Will Stand Strong 30 day devotion. Yeah, I saw that on yeah, your website. And the first yeah. ten days is loving god in his word and one of the first things we do in the first few days is what does it mean to be made in the image of god it's about identity okay our identity is found in a creator we didn't just come here by accident so the great thing is when people and we love these conversations you know obviously as you and i as fathers you know we look at our kids and you see similarity yeah right they 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 act a certain way. You know, my oldest son, we were just talking the other day, he's got the him in his nose, right? Okay. And so he's he's cursed with the him in his nose. And, you know, and so you see a lot of the similarities. You see my influence on my kids, hopefully f- for good, right? Right, not yeah. for bad. But it's a beautiful thing. But the, the but even more amazingly is to know that you and I have been placed here on earth, that we have a creator an uncaused first cause, an eternal being, a supreme being that's not contingent on anything, that transcends space, time, and the continuum, that is imminent, though, in creation. And so here, the Godhead and perfect unity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, creates. Yeah. And He designs. It's not, and I, when people say, God put effort in making us, no. No. God doesn't make effort in anything. God speaks and it's done. Yeah. And he does it perfectly without mistakes. So in his exhaustive knowledge, he creates us in his image, meaning God is spirit, we're told in scripture. Okay. So he is eternal in his being and he is infinite, boundless. There's nothing that he lacks. He doesn't improve in his quality, but in making man, he made us with emotion as god has emotion okay being made in the image of god is saying that we have intelligence as he's intelligent that we have love as he is love right that's being made in the image of god he gives us a soul because we both have a material aspect and an immaterial aspect god does not have any material asset aspect to him he's a simple being meaning he's not compartmentalized right he doesn't add and subtract right from his being we're told that he's draped in a garment of light in First John one five. We're told that that God cannot lie or make mistakes according to Hebrews six eighteen. We're told in James chapter one verse twenty seven that there's no satire or variation of turning. Meaning you can't angle God yeah. at, at dimensionally. Okay, he's boundless. He's eternal in his existence, but he creates us in his image. Meaning we reflect who He is in our being. As we live and as we breathe, we're reflecting who God is. As we love, as we forgive, we're reflecting who God is. Yeah. And hopefully, on this side of heaven, as we live faithfully for Him, we know Christ is our Lord and Savior. I mean, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. And all who call upon Him have the right to become a child of God, according to John one twelve. Yeah. We recognize now, in a fallen state because Adam and Eve sinned and they fell short of God and they, were, they they experienced three deaths, spiritual, eternal, and physical death. And based on what we see in creation, according to Romans 8, we're crumbling. Things are decaying and they're crying out to be renewed and restored. So even though the image of God has been effaced in us because of the fall of, of Adam, it's not completely erased because the, still the goodness of God, love, right, hope, Forgiveness is still in us and to love others as God has loved us is still reflected in us. So on this side of heaven, if we accept Christ, we have eternal life with him. And that's the fulfillment of the purpose that God has given us to make his name known and to glorify him in all things according to 1 Corinthians 10.31. So saying that we're made in the image of God is saying we have a creator who loves us and we reflect that love to him and through his ability to love others around us. So it's not just a mechanistic thing to say he's our creator like we're a robot right he created us in his image freely therefore we have free will which is a perfect gift we you know forced love is a contradiction right right so when we say that we can freely choose right or wrong god gave us that ability just like in marriage that you freely love each other you freely submit one to another that is true love and where there's true love there's true freedom and there's true freedom there's true love so being made in the image of God, we are expressing that freely when we make choices. Yeah. So that's bearing witness that there is a deity that transcends us rather than just saying the alternative would either be we've always existed, which we know is false, or we came about randomly through evolutionary means. Yeah. Therefore, we bear no image of anything outside the realm of the natural causes. Therefore, there is true, really, then no purpose or no meaning but me made an image of God, there is purpose and there is meaning because a God who has purpose, who has meaning, meaning the fulfillment of it perfectly, has put that in each one of us.
0: Yeah. Huh. And that's why yeah. when we
2: say we're unique,
1: that's that's what that means. We're all unique, like everyone else. And you're very unique, Daniel. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we appreciate all those who joined us uh, for this podcast. If you want to connect with Jason, is it standstrong.org? Stand,
2: standstrongministries.org.
1: Standstrongministries.org. You can contact him through mm-hmm. there. Your, your email address is there. At least a contact yep. form is there. And then you had a, you have you and the Benhams have put together a 30 day devotional. Yeah, and U version. So okay.
2: everybody has U version. So if you have U version, I encourage people to check out that plan. It's a 30 day, first 10 days, love God, love his words. Second 10 days, is live in community, okay. and the final 10 days is lead as a voice of truth. So it's a way to help Christians stand strong wherever
1: they're at. Yeah, and you've got some stuff you mentioned. Maybe I shouldn't mention this, but I will. coming out with Love Life, who's a partner ministry, uh, with Pro-Life Apologetics and yep. stuff like that. That's coming out in the next Yeah, that's gonna
2: be months. coming out actually this fall, 2019. Okay. So if, if if people want to have a Pro-Life course that they can go in within like a less than an hour, mm-hmm. and we'll have a downloadable study guide um, I lay out the case for life, and I give tactics and ways that you can interact with an abortion advocate. One, strengthen your particular beliefs as a pro-lifer, but also engage in the in these conversations with other uh, you know people that, in this case, are supportive of abortion. But how you can tactfully and respectfully respond to their arguments in a way that, uh, quite honestly, Daniel, is very effective. And we're yeah. seeing that the more people that get equipped in our pro-life apologetics and they go out there and they use it, they're winning people over. And that's good because in the end, we're saving lives in the process, and we're sharing the gospel for all eternity.
1: Yeah, yeah. So connect with him, standstrongministries.org. You can connect with me, charlotte.citiesforlife.org. My email address is there in the contact uh, form. Um, And also we have a website that I mention uh, very often, which is sidewalksforlife.com, sidewalks the number 4, and life.com, which really speaks to the sidewalk counseling. It's to train and equip and encourage. We put articles out on almost a weekly basis. Me or Vicky, who's normally here on the podcast, writes an article about pro-life outreach at a local abortion clinic. And so connect with us mm-hmm. there, at least check out the resources that are there. But we appreciate all those who uh, who came and, and joined us for this podcast. Use me,
0: Lord. Use me, Lord.